0: Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks, and we'll talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to
1: Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host. And I'd like to invite you for the next hour to stick with us while we're discussing all things related to guns, shooting, hunting, and the firearms industry. I'm joined by my co-host, Zev the Wolf Nadler, owner and operator of the Firearms Concierge and
0: BestDronage.com. Hey, Zev. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for uh, being here today. Thanks for having me here today. And I'm really looking forward to our guests. We've got a great show. Yeah, we've
1: uh, we've been talking a lot about long-range shooting, and uh, our guest uh, that's coming up is one of the guys who's on the forefront of that uh, and has been basically expanding the ranges since uh, the early 2000s. Uh, really excited to have Todd Hodnett on the show with us today. Todd, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Kelly, thanks. I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, I look forward to it. The way we normally start off with each guest is a little bit of history. Why don't you uh, let our listeners know where you grew up, how you got into shooting, and uh, how you got to where you are today?
2: All right, so um, my world, uh, I, I don't consider it really that unique. Uh, grew up a West Texas, out, out near Lubbock, a little town called Loveland. Uh, grew up in... Uh, Ranching and farming. Uh back then uh was ranching and farming all the way through till I wanna say probably getting close to the early two thousands. Uh was in corn farming, grew up on a prairie dog town, so I've been shooting scoped rifles since I was six years old. Uh just grew up with that as part of my world. Got into cowboy action shooting of which met you through a mutual friend uh out at Shot Show one year, uh with Billy Boots. And then uh basically one nationals, uh, I believe it was in 2002, uh, started my own pistol shooting, uh, schools. Then I got into a uh, sniper competition, won enough of those that they, Uh, Horace asked me to come in and and, uh, join them as far as giving instruction to the military, teaching them how to use the equipment. So I I started doing that, and the military asked me to uh, come in and teach them actually how to shoot at that time, and if I'd be interested, and I did. And next thing I know, I went from uh, having four schools a year the first year to we've been booked the last ten years Every week we're booked uh, a year out continually. So it's it's been, it's been a good run. We enjoy it. We uh, develop reticles for Horace now. Uh, so I developed the H58, H59, trimmers 1, 2, 3, all the way up to trimmer 9 now, even though people don't know that's, that's coming out. But uh, we do that. We do consulting for a lot of different companies uh, in the industry. So uh, we, we've kind of got our hands in a lot of different pots and uh, work with TISWIG as a consultant. That's Technical Support Working Group. That's the R&D of DOD. So uh, as a consultant with them, we kind of steer where the government's looking at stuff and uh, where we're deficient and where we need to go.
1: Well, that's really exciting. I really love talking to people who have a passion for something and then figure out how to, to make a living doing that. Uh, you've been really lucky that you've been able to do what you love to do and, and share. And obviously, you must like the teaching part of it because that, that's where you kind of focus. To, uh, it's not the only way to make money in uh, the shooting sports, but it definitely is a way and, and it seems to have worked well for you.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it, If you would have asked me when I was younger, uh, and maybe not even that long ago, uh, if I was, you know, going to make my living as an instructor. Uh, I'd, I'd have laughed. I, I would have never dreamed. I wanted to fly crop dusters, wanted to fly jets, wanted to do something in that part of the world. And and you know, God works in mysterious ways. And next thing you you know, you know, you're you're really just helping out. You're you're trying to uh, help the guys out, wearing the uniform, and kind of give them some instruction. Try to get, you know make their job a little easier, make them better at it. And the next thing you know, they keep coming back. And time and time again, all of a sudden, uh, you've got your own school, you're an instructor, and then you're full time, you know, booked out for, for years in advance. And it's, it's been good. It's, it's been something I would have never thought really that, uh, I would have wanted to do for a career, but, uh, I love every day of what I do. So I get to work with some of the best guys in the world, uh, some phenomenal young men. Uh, and get to do something that I love doing, which is shooting long-range uh, every day. So it's, I, I'm really blessed.
0: Todd, you mentioned uh, across the world. Do you take uh, our, our foreign um, uh, allies as well and teach them here in the States?
2: Uh, yes, and, and I go to them. So I was in Australia and New Zealand uh, here recently and in Japan training our Marine Corps in Japan. I had 55 students there. But I trained uh, uh, SASR over in Australia, to Commando. Uh, we go and work with SAS in New Zealand. And then we also work with uh, uh, JTF2 up in Canada. Uh, they're Tier 1 guys. And then we go up there a lot, and then they come down to me as well. And then uh, we also work with Great Britain, uh, SASR and SBS. Uh, we also work with the Germans, the KSK guys. They come over. We work with uh, the Norwegians, the Denmark, or the Dutch, the Danes. Uh, nearly everybody that the government says I can work with. So if if our if our military works with their military, uh, usually they tell them about me, and then. Their military calls me up says, hey, can you do training for us? And so then I call the U.S. government up, and then we get it all okayed. And then after all the legal stuff gets worked out to where I can teach them, uh, we've worked with a lot of different countries now. Uh, you know, we, we keep it – even though they've allowed me to teach – more countries uh they've given me the okay to teach more countries than i really care to uh we keep it to a certain few uh, like i say we're, we're booked a year out and my main focus is of course on our boys uh so to, to make sure our boys have a open window uh, i kind of limit my foreign training but like i say there's there's probably at least two months out of the year that i that i'm training uh foreign groups
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that you you keep a priority with training our guys, and, and even though they are our allies, you know, I, I like the the focus on and our guys first. Let's step back a little bit. You talked about uh, cowboy action shooting. You mentioned a, a good friend of both of ours, uh, Bill Buckman. Uh, he he shoots the cowboy action shooting under the moniker Billy Boots. Uh, such a great guy. Um, you know, we we really loved um, he enjoys and, and and we love Charlotte now too. Uh, great guy. I uh, hope he's listening because uh, I'm going to have him on the show one of these times. I just got to figure out how we can compensate for that Texas accent a little bit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Billy, he's awesome people. He was one of the first people I met in the Cowboy Action Shooting World. Uh, We became fast friends and even traveled together. Uh, a lot, actually we went to shot show together several times. Uh, he, he's, he's a phenomenal person, just a a real true gentleman and a great shot. He's a, you know, he's a fanatic when it comes to shooting of any kind from his pistols to the cowboy action stuff. You know, when I say pistols with Billy, I mean, you know, elk hunting with pistols. So he's a, he's a real enthusiast and a real knowledgeable guy and just a, uh a huge heart. So he's, he's a phenomenal person.
1: Yeah, I think last season was the first season he hasn't hunted elk in a long time. Uh I think last tally it was 17 elk with his handgun. So, um quite a a, a great shot with a pistol, a, a really good cowboy action shooter. And for his age, I I think he's about, you know, close to, he's around 70. Um He's still up there with with the best of them. He, you know, he really shoots well, and and every time he goes out, he really intends to win. So uh, I really love that about him.
2: Yeah, he's Uh, he's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and he used to refer to you as his adopted son, so I I know that means a lot to you.
2: Uh, I I guarantee you, I miss him a bunch. uh, once I moved away from Paris, Texas, and moved back to the Panhandle, uh, basically do the long-range training and get back to the high winds, uh, that was one of the big things that I really missed was getting to be around Billy and getting to spend time with him.
1: Well, I try to get out to see him as much as I can. He comes out here once a year for uh, the end of trail, and so we get to spend time together. When I was uh, doing the, the hunting uh, Dallas Safari Club, I got to see him more often, at least once a year more often than I do now. But uh, we try to get together as much as we can. So thanks for mentioning him. I, I, you know, I really love him, and it's always nice to think about him. Uh, so once you went from cowboy action shooting, you you started teaching pistol. And how did that morph into to teaching the military? And uh, kind of give us an idea of what that first military class was like.
2: Well, it, a, actually, I had some rangers ask me to come in and teach them uh, some pistol stuff, and and I did. And there was a sniper competition at the end of the week, uh, and they asked me to stay. They said, hey, will not you stay and shoot it? I said, well, I, I didn't bring a rifle. And they said, hey, you know, one of the guys that actually invited me to come down there, uh, he was generous, and he said, hey, Todd, you can shoot my rifle. I, he said, I got a spare. And so I jumped on his rifle, and he was – Setting up that night trying to teach me, try to show me what the horse reticle was. I'd never seen it before. Uh, and how to use the ATRAG ballistic engine that came with it. And so we we set up that night. He kind of showed me it's just a male-gridded reticle. So the, the reticle is not, you know, uh, hard to understand. Uh, it's just different as far as what I was used to at the time. And so uh, basically started playing with the ballistic engine and, and ended up, Kind of getting hooked that weekend, and then uh, they they were sitting around at the end of the uh, match, and they said, "Hey, if you want to sign up for the Snipers Challenge match, which was uh, held there in Stevensville, Texas, they said uh, it's you know the largest match of the year, but places are filling up fast. If you want to sign up, sign up fast." Well, I asked the guy that I'd shot with, I said, "Hey, you want to shoot in it together?" And he said, "Sure." So me and him signed up in it. I asked the guy that had the rifle, said, "Can I borrow your gun for two weeks and you know get?" boned up on it, try to see if this is the way to I want to go. And he said, sure, you know, keep it. Well, I ordered ammo, and the ammo came in the night before the match. So I didn't even get to, to zero the gun before I went to the match. But after playing with the ballistic engine, looking at it a little bit and understanding it better, uh, I was fortunate and was able to win that competition, and then I won the next one and the next one. And then that kind of got me in. So basically uh, winning rifles at the competition, uh, winning scopes, and then Horace said, hey, you know, you're winning all these matches using our stuff. Would you would you like to be sponsored by us? And I said, well, kind of already am because, you know, you've given scopes away that I've won. And they said, well, would you do military demos for us? And I said, sure. So they sent me out to Quantico to do a military demo. So I go out and sit down and train the Marine Corps on how to use the equipment. And then at that time was uh, – That next, I think it was in January, right after SHOT Show, so probably right after I met you, uh, we went out and did the first, pre-what they even knew as a PSR rifle, but we did the first long-range test there in Yuma, and I was the first shooter, and so uh, I had to leave SHOT Show a day early, drive down to Yuma, and I shot, it was 500,000, 1,500, and 2,000 meters, and you shot groups through each of them, and then... You know, you left and talked to the guys and did whatever. So I had some guys come up and they said, Hey, you know, those are phenomenal groups. Would you teach us how to do what you're doing? So I go out to Pendleton. It was the, uh, uh the detachment one. It was their, you know, first, first real look at a special, uh, group of Marines to, to kind of fit into USOC. And so, and phenomenal bunch of guys. So I go down and I train with them for a week. And teach them how to use the equipment. Well, at the end of the week, they said, Hey Todd, you know, you really didn't teach us how to shoot. I said, No. Nope. You know, I'm a cowboy. I'm standing in my lane. You didn't ask me to teach you how to shoot. You asked me how to uh, use the equipment. And that's exactly what I taught you. And they said, would you change anything about the way we shoot? And I said, oh, yeah, I'd change a bunch. And they said, all right, what? (laughs) So I started listing everything on the board and what I would change and what they would get from it. And then I got about halfway down through my list, and they said, all right, stop. You know, we want you to come back for a month. And I said, all right. Yeah, I was ranching and farming at the time. And it was in a slow time of year, so I was like, yeah, I I can come back. So they said, all right, we want to go out and do, you know, training with you. So we looked at going to one place, and I knew, you know, personalities are personalities, so... I knew that they wouldn't want me, another instructor coming into their facility and doing the training. It, uh, people kind of get weird that way. So I told them, I said, "Yeah, good luck. It's probably not going to work out." You know, and they said, "Oh no, no. We we use this guy all the time. You know, it, it'll be no problem." Well, sure enough, the guy said no, and so they they ended up saying, "Hey, do you have anywhere?" I said, "Hang on." Maybe I've got a friend. So I called and talked to a buddy of mine that has a place up in Utah, and I had met him in the cowboy action shooting as well. Uh, So we went up to the Happy Jack Mine uh, where a friend of mine lives, and we did the first Detachment 1 training, which was a month-long training. We trained half the guys for two weeks and then the other half for another two weeks. And so it kind of started from there, and then seventh group called, and then – A couple of other groups called that uh, are highly looked up to. And then from there, uh, everything kind of, you know, started running downhill or downhill in a good way. So everything started flowing fast and uh, ended up, you know, had the four classes the first year and then the second year uh, was really covered up heavy with uh, recon marines, uh, one, five, three, four, And it just started bouncing through real fast. Worked heavily with the Marine Corps for a while, and then uh, Special Forces jumped in and then uh, started working with SEALs, and now we... We have contracts for the next five years with SEALs, uh, and then the Special Forces. We worked with every group uh, in the Special Forces world. Um, so basically, now we work with every schoolhouse. Uh, I train the trainers. Uh, they come down, and spend time with me. I design the reticles, the uh, the Trimmer Twos, Trimmer Threes, H fifty eight, H fifty nine. So all the reticles that the military is either one using now or moving to,
0: uh, which is Todd. the
2: Trimmer Three. Uh,
0: Todd. I, yes, sir. I'm gonna I'm gonna break you just for a second because we're running out of time, and there's something that Kelly and I really want to talk to you about. So yep. I'm Go just ahead. gonna break in on that because this is such an important subject and a hot one. So um, what I wanted to ask you is, you know, you're you're pushing the ELR limits with prisms and rails. Can you explain to to me what that means? Because I'm not I'm pretty ignorant about the use of, of both of those uh, for pushing ELR limits.
2: Yep, no problem. So uh, basically. Way back, you know, you got to test your limits to see where your limits are. So we we went out and we shot out in Utah, and we with a fifty cal, we shot out to four thousand eight hundred eighty nine meters, and and it was it was really to learn what our limits were. So I needed 156 mils. Obviously, I didn't have that to dial in my scope or even to hold in the reticle, even in the horse reticle. So uh, we were holding on clouds and shooting, trying to hit this target that we couldn't see anymore. But we have to do some of that stuff sometimes to know what our limits were. So in the process, uh, the prism the, the mindset of the prism came up when a company called me that actually makes these things and they said, Hey, you know, what do you want? And I said, Well, I need a, I was working for uh, Tiswig developing a subsonic capability. And I said, I need something that gives me a prism adjustment uh, of about four mils so it, when it pops up in front of my scope, boom, now I'm zeroed with subsonic, it's still on my crosshair and he said, what else do you want? I said, I need something that gives me a lot of mils, can you give me like 30 mils, 50 mils, 70 mils and he said, yeah, and so he brought out this prism that's a mini periscope basically that sits in front of your scope so now we are giving the guys the capability and with you know, I was working with a group and uh, you know, they they told me, they said, hey, we're having a Issue at the distances that we're trying to shoot where we can't see the target anymore. So I had Mark LaRue from LaRue Tactical build me a 20 mil rail, a solid 19 and a half inch uh, 20 mil adjustment. So you slap it on your pictine rail, and you're off and running. So it's just like down 20 mils on your scope. And so we mounted two of them on top of each other and was able to push a 50 out to 2,900 meters and still at full power, which is great because now we can get PID uh, for the guys downrange doing work. And then the next step was uh, we started putting the prism on top of the rail. So we have 30 mil prisms. We have 50 mil prisms. Uh, we're working on getting adjustable uh prisms so where we can actually dial with a turret on the side of them. So working with the company for about 2 years we finally got to the quality uh that we could actually start moving them into the government stuff and so now we can actually end up engaging targets at extreme long ranges uh which you know right now we're we're really heavily military focused on this capability uh because of what's going on in the world and so it's uh the I don't know about the availability of these uh tools you know like the prism uh to the general market, but uh to our military absolutely we're we're moving in that direction because it gives us the capability that we just don't have with normal scopes uh to be able to have full power and still reach out you know well past two miles you know we're we're shooting you know. Several hundred meters past, you know, two miles now, and and still with with uh, really the, the real capability or the the problem now is the ammo itself not being able to see the target. So it's uh, it's really extreme spreads and standard deviations that are giving us the hit probability issues. But now with the scopes, the quality of scopes, the night four seven uh, to thirty five powers, what we can do with those, the the quality in those scopes in. Comp- in combination with prisms and rails, uh, now you can actually shoot out to 4,000 meters.
1: So you mentioned the 50 cal. What what other calibers? What other uh, rounds are you finding, you know, reach that limit better than others?
2: Yeah, you know that's it. It, it really comes down. There, there's a lot of good ballistics uh, when you sit and compare stuff on paper, whether it's a four oh eight, whether it's a 375. You know, there's uh, I even built a seven mil 300 Norma. So the new ASR rifle will be a you know a 300 Norma with. Uh, a, some, you know, I, I got to watch how much I actually, you know, spit out here on the radio, but it, with a high BC bullet, I know it's been picked uh, I know most of the industry knows but it's Basically there there's a lot of capability there. I love my three hundred Norma. Uh I had three thirty eight and was a huge three hundred thirty eight Lapua fan for years and years until I got my first three hundred Norma and, and to my knowledge I was I got the second one past Jimmy Sloan, the guy that developed it. And then from there we've we've been pushing and running the three hundred Norma and it surpasses the three thirty eight Lapua uh handily. So uh, but then you get into the ELR game. So I don't consider 2,000 meters extreme long range. But when you when you get into, you know, 3,000 meters and that kind of distance, you know, whether or not you can hit it with the, the 300 Norma, now you're looking at velocities that you need with higher BCs. Where we're focused as far as military, though, goes is more in a 50 cal because everybody's got a 50 cal. Uh, the government is not really – Interested in seeking out an ELR rifle like a 375 or a 48. So you know that's not the main focus. If we can get there with the 50 cal, we need to get there with the 50 cal. So our focus now is better ammunition, trying to get something that can give us that capability to where when you see a strike at you know. Uh, 3,200 meters, which is 2 miles, or 3,800 meters, when you see a strike and you make a good second shot correction, you can actually hit the target with your second shot correction. Because if you look at 40 feet per second in extreme spread, which is pretty much average, if not considered even good in a lot of military ammo, that's over two meals of, of elevation change at 3,500 meters. So, in a, in a normal extreme spread, two meals, you're not even getting close to the target. You're talking over 70 inches now of adjustment, and that in just extreme spread. So, it's, it's something that. We have to manage. We have to take care of, and that's what our big focus is right now. The I think the long range game is chasing the 375s, uh, the 408s, and that's fine. I, I I would love one. You know, I would love to kind of play in that game, and and shoot King of the Two Mile and do that kind of stuff. I never have time because we're always booked uh, solid. You know, as far as uh, I don't have time to get away to do that kind of stuff but i'd even like to get one to play and we do long range hunting me and my boys uh we'll go out and shoot and engage animals at extreme long ranges uh but the 375 may give us more capability uh but to be honest i haven't seen many of them that actually shoot i've had a lot of them show up at the place but when you know when it comes time to prove it and put groups on paper at two thousand meters, uh, we just don't find guns competing well with the three hundred norma. Three hundred norma does a phenomenal job still, and the uh, a lot of the three seventy fives that I've got to play with really didn't perform as well as you know the person brought them in thought they did. And so, uh, what we'll bullet
1: see. and what bullet and what weight are you using in that three hundred norma?
2: I like the 230 grain burger myself. Uh-huh. It's, okay. it, it it gives me a a really good high BC and gives me a lot of capability for grouping at distance. Uh, it does a really good job terminal ballistics. at 2,000 meters. We have not found a bullet it, that we've all went in and out of deer and, you know, blown a nice hole on the backside. So, you know, it, it's it, it probably the hole on the backside is about the size of your thumb. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's not the size of your fist or anything, but it's it's good expansion on the bullet, and it moves all the way through, and we haven't found anything. So it's doing a good job still. Um, I, I like the hybrids. I think the hybrids have a great uh terminal ballistic property. So it it gives us the capability of intentions on target that we're looking for.
1: I I expected that to be your answer. Uh, I know a good friend of mine, Bob Beck, who uh, is the host uh, of Extreme Outer Limits, has uh, shot a lot of animals, a three hundred Ultra with uh, the 230 grain bullet. He's a firm believer. Of course, he owns MOA rifles now, so he's he's building... uh, uh, nozzlers, You know, 28, 30 nozzlers and uh, stuff like that to keep product moving. But if he had to hunt with only one rifle and hunt anything he wanted to hunt, it'd be the, the 300 Ultra with the, the 230 grain bullet. So, yeah, I, I expected that was what you were going to say. Great ballistic coefficient and just uh, burger makes some of the best flying bullets on the market for sure.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and I think the 300 Ultra is really close in ballistics to the 300
1: Norma. You uh, obviously you're living in the Panhandle, right?
2: Yes, sir. I live in Canadian Texas, uh, uh-huh. ninety miles northeast of Amarillo.
1: So you've got some uh, pretty uh, um, good country for long-range hunting. You got some nice deer up there. Uh, I know that your uh, bio says that you've you've taken a, a deer at two thousand yards, which uh, that's probably the longest confirmed. Uh, kill that I can remember here in hunting. Uh, I know some of my other friends have taken animals at over a thousand yards for sure, but 2,000 is really putting it out there.
2: Yeah, you know, and I have to correct you there real quick. It was my son. My son shot his (laughs) deer this year at 2,040 meters,
1: so, you know, a little
2: over 2,200 yards. But it's, uh, you know, as you get boys old enough to pull the trigger, dad gets to spot and call in, and uh, the boys get to pull the triggers all the time. So it's, uh, but it makes it fun. I have uh, my neighbor on the property uh he, him and his brother on the property, we do all the training on. So it's, he actually set up and started cloning deer and he has a patent on cloning deer. So we do a lot of cull hunting and these animals were running off the property. You know, we're not, we're not going out and taking trophy animals at 2,000. But when we see an animal that is a cold, we will, you know, potentially run away from it if we can and try to get out to distance because a lot of what we're doing is actually testing terminal ballistics and true terminal ballistics, not just slowing the bullet down and shooting through uh, uh, jail, but actually shooting, you know, live animals at distance to where we can actually tell the military, hey, this bullet performs like X, and based on true experiences that we've had. So we're, we're trying to give good R&D uh, for our boys going downrange to where we can knowledgeably uh, get good information for them so that when they go downrange they can do a better job and we can actually buy better equipment for them to do that job for us so that that's a lot of the reasons that we're doing you know the long-range call hunts. Uh, but it gives us capability to to see you know test scopes for one what can we see what can we PID uh, check the ballistics to see if our dope still working at 2,000 meters and then uh, you know when we're fortunate and everything comes together and, and we're able to, to get a kill you know my son killed at 2040. Uh, Jason, my neighbor, killed at 2009 and 1630. My son killed his pig last year at 1668. So there's, you know, the, the, what's neat is we're, we're seeing a real capability, and this is not, I mean, we're not using prisms or elves for that distance. So this is just pure capability of great glass and really good quality uh, weapons and good ammo. So and it, it's something everybody can do and everybody can enjoy.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting to hear about that, Todd. It it really pushes the limits of what people have begun to think what was normal. I know probably back when you were shooting – cowboy action shooting and even shooting varmints uh shooting prairie dogs you probably thought well six or seven hundred yards was a long ways but you know those that type of yardage now just seems like it's commonplace hey i want to thank you for being with us todd we're out of time i really uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience with us i know our listeners are really excited about the stuff that you're doing and i'd like to invite you back when we get a little bit more time we'll talk a little bit more about long range shooting
2: yeah, absolutely, Zev. Appreciate it. And, Kelly, uh, miss seeing you at Shotshaw. I'll make sure to drop by and say hi again this year and uh, enjoy your friendship and uh, uh, knowing you, you've been awesome ever since I met you nearly 15 years ago now. So good luck with the show and be happy to come on anytime.
1: Thanks. I appreciate it. And I want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us through uh, this next commercial break, and we'll be right back.
3: your internet flagship station for sports, Voice of America Sports. For over 40 years, McMillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gun stock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, McMillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the McMillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, Call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at MacMillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacMillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacMillanUSA.com. The fans now have a voice to speak their mind. No holds barred. They need a bitch's ass and then move I just think that the coach made a mistake. Crazy.
1: NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL. Speak up. Speak up. Or forever hold your mouth.
3: We ain't playing around here. Voice
1: America Sports.
0: You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Thanks for sticking with us through that commercial. Uh, Really looking forward to our next guest. Um, I had an opportunity to meet this young man uh, a few years back uh, when he was a graduate of Yavapai Gunsmithing School. He came to our facility and applied for a job. Um, I think hiring him was one of the best things that McMillan Firearms ever did. Uh, I'd like to introduce Charlie Bell. Charlie, thanks for being on the show with us.
4: Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. I really appreciate it.
1: I'd like to hear a little bit about your history, where you grew up, um, what got you to go to gunsmithing school in the first place, and and how you got into the
4: firearms industry. Well, I started, I was born in uh, Naples, Idaho. Uh, I was actually about as close to Canada as you can get in Idaho without actually being there, Um, barely in America. Uh, You know, I was raised around hunting and shooting and it was just kind of a way of life. We never really considered firearms a thing to treasure or to own. It was just always a utilitarian piece. There was always one tucked in the corner, and we shot deer in the fall, and we ate them. Um, you know, and that's just kind of how I grew up. I moved to Arizona in January of 2006, and I was living with my grandparents at the time, helping them build a house, and I was in Prescott, Arizona, and that was the year that Fred Wells passed away. And I remember reading in the newspaper that they were having this memorial for Fred Wells and Prescott and a whole bunch of people were going to a bunch of people I knew. So we went and at the time Alan Lord was there, the guy that run the gunsmithing program and Prescott, you to apply. And they said, Oh, well, you really ought to apply. You know, they'd get about a hundred applicants a year and they take, you know, 18 to 25 people. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that'll be something to look into. And I thought about it and thought about it. I was talking to my grandfather and he said, well, you ought to apply. And I said, well, What if they say no? He says, well, you're already not going to school there. What's the worst they can say? You know, they can't say no twice. You can just go ask and see what happens. So I went to Yalapai College, and I walked into the department there. And at the time, I had only ever met Alan over the phone. And so I saw a guy in there moving boxes around and being a farm guy. I just walked in, and grabbed a box, and followed him. And he says, well, what do you want? I said, well, I'd really like to go to gunsmithing school. Where do I apply? And he says, well, just write your name down on this list. I run the program, and you're in it now. And that's
1: how I got started. <laughs> well, that seems like a fortuitous choice to pick up a box and and help out. You know, knowing you, I know that's not something that you give any thought to and, and really thought about the outcome of it. You just did it because that's who you are. But, yeah, that seems like that might have been the, the straw that uh, really set up your future. Very
4: well could have been, actually. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So you, so you went to school at Yavapai. Um for those who do not know, Yavapai's got a really top-notch uh, gunsmithing program. Uh as well as some other gro- programs in the country, but we hired a bunch of people out of Yavapai and almost every one of them were everything we had hoped for, and, and then some, as you were, Charlie. Uh, tell us a little bit about the program, and, and for anyone who's thinking about going to gunsmithing school, um, tell them about the program there so that they have you know some information about it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I went to school there from the fall of 2006 to the spring of 2008. Um, when I went to school there, they were running one shift. It was a lot smaller program. We started with 26 students. And when I graduated, there was only nine of us left, Um, myself and Garrett Stevens and a couple other guys that started their own shops. Um, And when we went to school, we went to school for eight hours a day, Monday through Thursday. So you really had to have full dedication. There was between one and two hours a day of lecture, you know, in-class theory, that sort of thing. And the rest of it was all hands-on. You know, we built a wooden stock in our first semester we did a whole bunch of machining projects. We had to get through the whole first year before they would even let us put a reamer in a rifle barrel. You had to prove that you could hold tolerances plus minus a thou. You had to be able to show your work, show everything that you could work to a print that you could thread the wires. Um, we had a whole bunch of different milling work. There was a lot, a lot of projects that we did. Um, and so that's how we got through our first four days of the week. And then Friday was another practicum day. So you could work and catch up on all the projects you didn't get done. And the other, 28 to 30 hours that you had already put in that week. It was a really exhaustive program. Um, it takes a lot of work and dedication. I think that's one of the reasons why there were so many of us that started and so few of us that finished was just because of the amount of time it takes. It really does take a lot to actually delve into it. Um, Alan Lore was the guy that started the program, uh, was in charge of the program when I was there. I know it started before he got there. Um, and I actually taught there shortly after I had quit working for you and taught there for another year and a half before I moved back to Idaho.
0: Charlie Zev here. Uh, I I just wanted to make a comment that uh, a friend of mine who has actually been on the show uh, went to your school as well, uh, probably a little after you did, and he said that the one thing that he took away from gunsmithing school is that you could solve pretty much every problem. In other words, that the curriculum and the way it's run and, and the ability to help you guys think out of the box and get to what you need to to, to get to where you need to be really helped him in life and many other ways. Did, did you find that to be the case?
4: Absolutely. The two things that I really got out of it was, one, the problem-solving ability and reverse engineering. Everything that we did was either solve a problem or take this part and reverse engineer it so that you understand how and why it does what it does, so that you could recreate it working properly every single time. And the other thing that we learned that really stuck with me was attention to detail. Absolutely everything you do had to have the utmost attention to detail. I'm sure that that's one of the reasons why the people that have been hired from that program to work for McMillan Firearms back when they had their own firearms company, well, that was one of the reasons why we were able to turn out such high-quality firearms is just because of the attention to detail. And we were held to that standard even after we got out of school and into the firearms company. That's, again, one of those reasons why they work so well
1: my father used to always say there's only two kinds of gunsmiths poor ones and crooked ones because you just can't make any money if you're doing what most people think of a gunsmith Uh, a a guy has a, a firing pin spring that that seems to have lost its punch, so you you take it to a guy and he may not be able to buy one but he could probably make one you know the manufacturing of parts the fixing things that are broke. You just can't make enough money doing those kind of things. So it seems like most people who really love gunsmithing end up getting into basically manufacturing or, or building and, uh, you know, because that's where you can make a little bit of money. Uh, I know that you've, uh, you've got yourself a a company where you actually build rifles, correct?
4: So I do still build rifles. Um, the, amount of rifles that I build now, I've actually began to limit. When I started, uh, I started a machine shop and I thought I would manufacture and I would build rifles and I would go at it full time. And I grew until I actually in, oh, two years ago now, so the end of 2015, I had built 49 rifles by myself in the calendar year 2015. And then when I went into 2016, I realized that when the whole thing was said and done, I had worked really, really hard and I was really unhappy with the result I had produced. I got 49 rifles out, all was well, but I had two of them come back that had some quality control issues. Nothing that was unsafe, but they just weren't up to the standard that I was comfortable with. I was really actually kind of saddened that I had actually let them leave. So I went back, I kind of re-looked at my whole strategy of how I was going to run my shop and marketing and decided I was going to commit to, I have a certain number of customers, I'll work with them, I'll work with the people that they suggest, and I'll hold myself to 25 Rifles in 2016, and that went very, very well. Um, So I do build a limited number of rifles, and then over and above that, um, I do some general repair work for people locally and that sort of thing, because, like you say, there's only two kinds, poor people and crooked people when it comes to gunsmithing. Um, But the majority of where our bread and butter is is in manufacturing. I stumbled into um, manufacturing recoil lugs after I had worked for your brother, Rock and seen that there was a bunch of people doing it, and then they didn't really want to do it anymore because they had so many other jobs going. And so I started making recoil lugs when I bought my first CNC mill when I moved here, and now I produce a little over 2,500 recoil lugs a year, and I'm one of the largest uh, sellers of recoil lugs and bolt knobs on eBay.
1: Well, that's interesting. Uh, You know, that's a sideline. People don't realize. Anyone who's in the firearms industry knows that there are a lot of things you just don't want to make yourself. You, you want somebody else to make them for you because, one, the return on the investment of the time and the programming and everything that it takes to make it for the number of, of items that you're going to use for the guns that you build. For instance, we, we built 600 rifles in 2012 at McMillan uh, Firearms. We could not have geared up and produced barrels. Though we knew how to make barrels and we could make good barrels, it wouldn't have been cost effective for us to make our own. We would have had to have been able to continue to sell barrels as a product in order to make that venture worthwhile. And my focus was on selling rifles, so we opted to, to buy barrels. Same thing with triggers. Same thing with recoil lugs. You know, that's a part that's just a, such a pain to set up and make so few of them at a time, people want to buy them. And I think you were really smart in picking an item that everybody wants to change when they're building a the gun.
4: Right, that's the same thing with, uh, with bolt knobs. And especially, like you say, that's one of the first questions. It's funny you bring up barrels that almost everybody asks when, you know, they find out I'm a gunsmith or a machinist, they say, oh, do you make your own barrels? And I tell them, no, I don't, because if you wanted me to make you a barrel, it would cost $300,000, because that's how much money it would take for me to get all of the equipment set up to be able to make one barrel. Now, if I could sell 500 barrels a month, I could have a return on investment relatively quickly, but there's so many people that are already doing it so well, there's just really no need for me to get into that market. When I first started making recoil lugs, the reason was because I had called Brownells trying to get recoil lugs for making my own rifles, and they had 17 different recoil lugs listed in their catalog, and they had none of any of them in stock, not a single one. So I figured if if they're out, then there's got to be a market out there. Somebody else has got to want to buy them. I'm not the only person making guns on Earth, so I set up and produced them myself.
1: So what's the next item you're going to put on your list of things to make and sell?
4: So the first two things that I did was, again, the recoil lugs, and then I got into a CNC Swiss screw machine, and I now produce bolt knobs, like a badger bolt knob. I do some grenade-style bolt knobs. Um, Actually, I have 45 different types of bolt knobs, and I work with a local anodizer, the premier anodizer west of the Mississippi that does the largest range of colors in aluminum available in America. So we have Specifically, bolt knobs available in, like, 17 different colors from mild to wild. Um, all the tactical colors, bright red, pink, blue. And the next two products that we're working on is rings, um, very similar to, like, a Vortex or a sequence mash pair rings, and scope bases. Um, and we're really trying to stay on the cutting edge with rings because, again, like, 34-millimeter rings, there's very few people out there that actually produce them. Night Force produces a really nice pair. Vortex produces a really nice pair, Uh, and, again, Seacons does, but they almost always seem to be kind of out of stock. So once I find an item like that, that's usually where I go. And if you're going to build a ring, the best next thing is to build a base that goes with it So you have a total system on top of a rifle. That's kind of where we're headed.
0: Charlie, I love your business model, looking for that niche where other people, you know, there's a need, but there's they're, they're out of stock. And then you've taken it to eBay, which, uh, first of all, I'm very happy to hear that eBay allows parts of uh, firearms uh, to be sold. I, I wasn't under that impression. So that's great news. Um, but yeah, that, that's a great business model. And for people who haven't seen his website, which I went out to today um, and loved all the different colors and all the different configurations you had as bolt knobs, I believe your website is uh, pure-precision.com. Is that correct?
4: That is correct. We actually used to, last year, we were selling uh, all kinds of different things. We were selling lathe-turned-bullets and knobs and recoil lugs and a couple of different things on our website. And we actually ran into... Um, the hosting company that we had that was maintaining our website and the credit card processing company that we had cut us off entirely. And we kind of got black flags, so we had to do a jumping through a bunch of hoops in order to find a place that would actually host our website because we sell firearms parts. And, you know, you mentioned eBay. They really aren't very handy about buying or selling firearms parts. It's actually more difficult to find our stuff than it is almost anybody else. the firearms part they don't have all the metrics and the different things for being able to search in the boxes to find it as easily um Uh and the reason why we've gone there is just because it's the quickest way for us to be able to test products in the market so if we want to try something we'll make 30 or 40 of them put them on ebay in the market and see the market reaction to them inside of three to six months and if the reaction is good then we produce them in a much larger quantity and we put them on our own website. And then we're now that we're working with a new credit card processor, we're making it more available to purchase direct through our website so that we can, again, eBay charges fees. But we don't have to charge those. We can keep the price down for our customer.
0: And do so, you have anything to any, any of the more traditional uh, websites for gun parts like guns broker or something like that? or
4: I have used gun broker. Um, they have a, their system is beautiful for advertising, but it's difficult to implement when it comes to credit card processing. Again, we had a processor that was working with us, and then we're in the midst of negotiating with a new processor. It's really difficult for us when we're small to go to a credit card processor and tell them, you know, we need to be able to process when we started twelve to $1,500 a month. They kind of laugh at it because to them it's not even worth it, and they don't want to negotiate with you at all. For now, we've started and we've developed enough of a history that we can say, hey, we need to process this much a month, and they are working with us better. Um, Guns America is a, another really good source for advertising. Uh, Gun Broker has treated us well. Other than that, um, Instagram and Facebook is where we get the majority of all of our advertising, and that seems to have helped us a lot.
0: So, Charlie, that's interesting. Um, I had heard through the grapevine that one cannot really boost or sponsor on either Instagram or Facebook anything that has to do with firearms and that you'd be not only warned once or twice, but that they'd actually terminate your page. Have you had any of that?
4: Yeah, I have boosted one post and went through that very exact same thing. Um, we We've basically just gone to outside sources to try to find everything that we could. I've gone through uh, a couple of the different larger groups on Instagram, I believe Daily Gundos and Gun Channels, and they have you know between fifty and 100,000 followers. So I've just worked with one of those guys. I told him, hey, if you're interested to put my product out, I'll give you a free mobile break. I'll install it for you. I'll give you a bolt knob. I'll install it for you. Just send me a rifle. And then that's how we've been able to develop that. But as far as actually boosting posts with Facebook especially, no, they really have put the clamp down on that in the last year to where we used to, a year and a half ago, any post that we put, especially when we were going to, like, the large small arms review show in Phoenix, we put a post out on that. We had four to 5,000 views a week for the six weeks leading up to it. This last year, we put the same exact post with our location in the Small interview Building, and we got 40 to 50 views in the entire six-week period. And that really was just them. I wouldn't call it censorship, but they have definitely made it harder to reach even our own audience on Facebook.
0: Yeah, I think we should call it censorship because that's what it is.
4: <laughs> well, Hey, Charlie, I want
0: to yeah, thank
1: you for bringing up your struggles with... Um, the banks and, and credit card processing. Uh, I know you worked for McMillan Firearms in 2012 when Bank of America told us to take a hike. It just so happens that I was contacted last week by a representative of one of the congressmen who's doing a roundtable to discuss how we can um, change the process that was set Uh, in motion by Obama in, you know, basically coercing the banks to not do business with the firearms industry. So, so I'm going back to Capitol Hill on the 22nd of June to meet with uh, uh, Congressman Goodlatte and his roundtable to see if we can't maybe even come up with some solutions for the people who's been victimized by it. Now, fortunately for us, it didn't cost us anything. We just had to move our accounts. And, you know, though it was a pain in the butt and it it took a little bit of time, it really didn't cost any money. But but I know a lot of people who've had their credit card processing accounts frozen. They've held out, you know, X amount of money uh, from them and held it for as long as they wanted to. I also know other companies whose bank accounts were frozen. So, uh, you know, they had a a big effect on the firearms industry, and and I would like to participate in a way to make things better for us. So thanks for mentioning that. Give me an opportunity to talk about that on the radio.
4: Well, absolutely. Thank you for for going back there and talking to to I believe Chairman Goodlat is of uh, I believe one of the subcommittees, and thanks for going back there and representing us. Honestly, it's very difficult to find any person that can actually truly articulate what small to medium-sized businesses have been through in the clampdown. I mean, there's been, you know, almost no ability to process, to do any form of lending, to even borrow, I mean, even modest sums of money to be able to get a new startup off the ground to work in this industry. It's been very, very difficult for a lot of people, Uh, a lot of people that vendors that I work with have told me, you know, you can send us a part for grinding, you can send us a part for almost anything, but you've got to give it a name that is non-firearms industry related because we can't even accept your checks or your anything with that listed in the memo line or our bank will freeze us out.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. I I don't even know how in anybody's right mind they could say, well, we're going to make it impossible for law-abiding, legally, structured businesses to do business. It just, uh, I don't know where anybody thought that that made any sense.
4: Well, it didn't make any sense to me or you, but somebody seemed to think it did. But, you know, that being said, it has done some things in that it's driven smaller manufacturers to work harder and really focus on customer service. If there's any silver lining at all, that's where I would have to say is that, you know, we really have been forced to take a step back and really specialize in the things that we really do well and can actually focus on and make good money at. Um, so not much of a silver lining, but that's the best I can come up with.
1: You know, I think you've learned really early in your career, because you're still young, that focusing on what can be profitable and what you can do well and what you can build a name for yourself with, uh, not just doing everything. Uh, you know, you've heard the saying, you uh, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, and that gets you that that kind of mentality for a customer that really isn't quality uh, conscious. He's just more concerned about getting out there on a weekend to, to be able to pull the trigger more often. And in that particular case, they're not willing to spend the kind of money it takes to get good quality service too. So I think you've done really well in, in deciding how you want your business to go, the direction that you're headed and, and what you're doing to make a difference in, in how people view you, uh, the, the quality consciousness that you, you know, Talked about earlier when you had a few uh, guns come back. You know, I know exactly how that feels. I hate it. You know, we make a thousand stocks a month, 12,000 stocks a year, and we'll get maybe 10 stocks a month that come back for one reason or another. A large majority of those are things that people don't understand. And if they understood the, the product and the process a little bit better, We probably wouldn't have gotten them back. But our first um, word to them when they call with a complaint is, hey, send it back. Let us take a look at it. So we're probably our own worst enemy in that case. But I want every single customer to be 100% satisfied with our product. And I know you feel the same way. I saw that in your work in the firearms. and, And just from the conversation we've had so far, you still feel that way.
4: Yes, sir. absolutely. That's it really has been one of the biggest focuses. It, it makes it difficult. Um, in our most recent growth, hiring people, it's made it very difficult for me. I found out that I am rather difficult to work for. Um, I would tell you that the few employees that I do have would would tell you that I am probably, very hard, but very fair. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I pay them as well as I do is because I know that I'm difficult to work for and I have expectations. I've always said that I would never ask another person to do something that I wouldn't do myself, but that does leave it pretty wide open because I don't have a problem working until nine o'clock at night to make sure that the product that I turn out is the best and most perfect that it can be before it leaves. Because it does make your gut just sink when somebody calls and says, hey, I have a problem, or hey, I got a bolt off that doesn't have any threads in it. You think, oh, my gosh, how is that even possible? We checked every single one of them to find out that they sent it back and, no, it had lamp-packed in it from shipping, or it was our fault, and we tell them, hey, we're going to overnight you another one to replace it. we we'll spend more in shipping than the product was. But as long as we have a happy customer at the end of the day, that's what makes the difference, and that's how our business can grow.
0: Charlie, in some of our emails back and forth, I noted that um, long-range shooting is one of your passions, and you know that seems to be all the rage lately. And the, the McMillan company and and Kelly specifically himself and I as well, we're we're very into extreme long-range shooting. Um, you know that being. You know, 1,500 yards and out, and uh, guys have been hitting 3,500 yards consistently uh, in the lead-up to the King of the Two-Mile at the end of this month. And I wonder, what kind of long-range shooting do you do? What are you into? And, and what do, where do you want to go with that?
4: My long-range shooting has been really, really hampered since I moved back to Idaho. Um, I know that's actually really hard for people to believe, because when most people think of Idaho, they think of southern Idaho, where they have large, open farm fields and huge expanses of you know, kind of the southern Idaho desert, more like northern Utah, where I'm located, again, being so far north, a long shot for most people around here is 150 to 200 yards. Um, I've hunted every year since I've been here, and I've actually had to wait for longer shots sometimes because most of the time the trees are so thick that 100 yards is about as far as you'll ever shoot. uh, It really is very easy. It kind of makes it a drop in the bucket, but it makes it to where you get lazy and you don't actually practice as much as you should. So recently, I've been driving down to Central Idaho or Southern Idaho, shooting some local um, tactical matches or PRS matches in order to be able to just keep my skills even moderately honed. Very low they are. Um, and as far as actual long range shooting, it's it's difficult to find. I've got a couple of people that we're working with now. Um, there for a while when we started, we were producing a lathe turn puts, and we were working a lot with the three seventy five Shy Tech shooters and some four hundred eight Shy Tech shooters. And I really, really enjoyed doing that. The only issue I had was, you know, between manufacturing and running my own business, traveling to Wyoming, traveling to Southern Idaho to be able to spend the time to actually do proper research and development and testing with them. has been a a pretty major challenge for us. Um, So that's, as far as long-range shooting goes, it's one of those things that, unfortunately, I haven't been able to do as much as I wanted, and I really, really miss it.
1: Hey, Charlie, we're just about out of time. I want to give you an opportunity to, to let our listeners know uh, where you're at, how they can get a hold of you, for you to give them their, your website again. Um, let's just let them know how they can get a hold of Charlie Bell.
4: The easiest way to get a hold of us is to go to pure-precision.com. Um, right on there, we've got a newsletter set up so you can sign up. We don't spam people. We just send out when we get new products that we've done market testing on that we're ready to put on our website, we send out a newsletter. Or when we do major updates to our website, we send out a newsletter. And again, on that same website, there are links to all of our products on eBay and Amazon. And we also have our phone number and our email addresses right there. Anybody wants to get a hold of us, we're available from seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock in the evening, and we'll answer any questions you've got. Most of the time, when you call get a hold of my lovely wife. She's way nicer to talk to on the phone than I am. and She can usually answer almost everything. And if she can't, then I do my best to make sure that everybody gets their questions answered, even when they're asking questions about other people. So, again, uh, pure-precision.com um, and we'll find us on Facebook, and we'll stick it to the man and make sure that everybody gets to see gun stuff on Facebook, whether they want us to or not.
1: Awesome. Hey, Charlie, thanks for being on the show. Really enjoyed having you on there. Congratulations on your success and, and your business. Uh, really proud to know that you, you started your professional career at, at McMillan Firearms, and I was really proud to to be your employer.
4: Thanks, Kelly. It's been a, a wonderful job, and I really do appreciate the break you gave me in the industry. It really, really did give me the ability to, to hone what I'm good at now, so thank you again.
1: Glad to have you on the show. Once again, we have come to the end of another great show. I'd love to thank our listeners for spending their valuable time with us. Remember, we'll be here next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another exciting episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Get out and enjoy this great country. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.